good morning. Before we open up the word, uh, I'd like to say a special word of thanks to Colin for his work on the uh, worship this morning. It was especially wonderful. If you will please stand with me and open your Bibles to the book of Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13, we're going to read verses 10 through 14. The word is also printed in your, your bulletin, so you can look there as well if you'd like. The writer says, We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sins are burned outside the camp. So also Jesus suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. This is the word of God. May he add his blessing to it. Let's pray. Hi and Holy Father, we come before you this morning and we call upon you to be present among us. We ask, Father, that your spirit would be here to teach and to instruct, to enlighten our hearts and minds, to help us to understand your truth and to apply it to our lives and to be truly changed by it. We ask these things in the blessed name of Jesus Christ, our risen Lord and Savior. Amen. You may be seated. The book of Hebrews has always been a source of intense fascination for me. I love the thought of the writer trying desperately to convince his audience that there is no need to ever look back. His audience were Hebrew Christians, as the name suggests, Jewish Christians. And there is always this temptation to pull back from the Christian faith, always this temptation to turn back from Christ. And the reasons were many. Rome sort of tolerated Judaism, even though it wasn't particularly fond of it. But Christianity, they considered a new sect, and they were out to destroy it. They looked upon the Christians as atheists because they denied the existence of many gods and insisted that there was one only. So for that reason, the, the Jews could feel more comfortable in the historic teachings of Judaism than they would in the Christian church. There's also the concept that they had been raised in this all their lives. From the time they were very young, they were brought to the synagogues or to the temple. They heard the reading of the Torah. They would listen as someone explained what the word of God meant there were all kinds of reasons to tenaciously hang on to this faith. It was steeped in all sorts of symbols and types and shadows. There were elaborate rituals to go through. All sorts of things that could help to make the Jewish faith more appealing. And certainly to those who had been raised in it all their lives. When Christ came... And said that he was the fulfillment of the law. When he said that he was the great Messiah. When he offered himself up on the cross. And when his apostles began to preach that faith. That salvation could come through him alone. There were many whose hearts were pricked with this wonderful truth. Who turned to embrace Christ. 
But upon realizing that they stood the loss of their own family members and households, upon realizing that they could be kicked out of the synagogues and forbidden to enter into the temples, and certainly upon the expansion of the covenant community from beyond the borders of national physical Israel to include the Gentiles and bring them in to compose this one body of God, the true people of Christ, the church, both Jew and Gentile, these things were difficult. And when you add to that some form of persecution for these Hebrew Christians... Though it wasn't terribly severe yet, as he mentions in chapter 12, for he says, you have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin. But they had accepted the spoiling of their houses and of their goods. People were free to come into their homes and steal their possessions. And when you add all of these things together, there were all sorts of reasons to be tempted to turn around, to look back to look over their shoulders, to recall the days that they had in the past and how much simpler life seemed back then and how easy it would be to renounce Christ and to go back into their old faith. The writer of Hebrews wants to assure them that there is no such option. To do so is to forfeit one's salvation and all hope of it. It is only in Christ the fulfillment of the Old Testament law. Only in Christ the fulfillment of all of the things that the patriarchs and the prophets look forward to. Only in Christ can we find satisfaction and hope and peace and contentment. So he does his best throughout 13 chapters of this letter to try to proclaim to them the need to hold on to Christ. He does so through a series of promises and reminders of the glories that await the Christian church. And also through a series of rather harsh warnings. Our God is a consuming fire. If any man will draw back, my soul will have no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who draw back unto perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. Throughout the book, he tries to warn the Hebrew Christians that there is nothing behind them and everything in front of them. And to keep pressing on despite the hardships and difficulties. When he comes to these verses in chapter 13, I have always marveled and been caught whenever I have read these. Now they have a special application to the Hebrew Christians that I would not neglect But I think we would be unwise not to also apply them to ourselves today. I included verses 10 and 11 because they're kind of an introduction to what's going on in verses 12, 13, and 14. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. Those who served in the tent had a right to eat part of the sacrifices. So when the people would bring in the sacrifices, they would be slain. They would be offered up unto the Lord as part of the ritual. And when they were done, the priest had a right to partake of some of those sacrifices. There was one time a year where this didn't occur on the Day of Atonement. When the bull was slain for the priest's sins and the goat was slain for the people's sins. 
God gave strict orders that during this time, those animals were not to be eaten. Instead, they were to be taken outside the camp and there to be burned completely. This was to portray before the Jewish mind a stark picture of two things. The exceeding sinfulness of sin. And the need that blood must be slain. Blood must be spilled to pay for it. We trifle with sin sometimes. We count it as a very light thing. To err is human. To forgive is divine. I'm only doing what's part of my humanity when I sin, when I fall short of the glory of God, when I miss the mark that he has set, when I transgress his law. God does not trifle with it. In one of R.C. Sproul's sermons, I heard him talking about the book of Leviticus, and he said it's actually good for devotional reading. I don't think there are a lot of Christians who share that perspective. But after hearing that, I thought, you know what, I'm going to go back and reread the book of Leviticus and try to keep this in mind, that it's actually good for devotional reading. And what he was trying to emphasize was that in all of this, there are all these shadows and types, and all of this, oh, this animal must be slain, and this animal must be slain, and the blood must be spilt in this manner, and the blood must be taken in and poured out upon the mercy seat during the Day of Atonement, and all of these dark and grisly things. I like my meat. Now, some of you are hunters and great. More power to you. I like my meat prepackaged at Walmart. <laughs> I don't want to have to go out and kill it. I certainly don't want to have to gut it. I don't want to have to go through all of the things that, it, that, that entails. I don't want to drain blood. I don't want to have anything to do with it. I eat my steaks. Forgive me. Well done. I don't want to see a drop of blood in my steaks. I know some of you can't believe it. You have to forgive me. But I don't want to see a drop of blood. But for the Old Testament saints... Theirs was a terribly bloody religion. And the book of Leviticus is a stark reminder of how much God hates sin. The soul that sins shall die. We sometimes become amazed when David was bringing the ark back from the Philistines. And he had it on the ox cart, which was the improper way of carrying it. And Uzzah saw it beginning to fall. And he reached out to steady the ark. Presumably for a good motive. To try to keep it from hitting the ground. Again to borrow Sproul's language here. He said he made the fatal flaw. Of assuming that his hands were less contaminated. Than the soil of the earth. It would have been better that it should touch the ground. Than that it should touch the sinner's hands. God is a holy God. We often refer to God as love, and he is. The Bible says that such. But do you know the, the Bible nowhere says God is love, love, love. But it does say he is holy, holy, holy. There is a holiness in God that is something that we cannot properly understand, which our modern American minds cannot properly wrap around. We presume to think that somehow God is a doddering old grandfather who sits in heaven looking upon his grandchildren with delight and can't wait to simply say, Yeah, you know what? It's all right. They're my grandkids. We fail to recognize that even angelic 
beings cover their faces in his presence. Those who have never sinned refuse to gaze upon his glory. And he told the saints of old, if I were to show myself to you, you would instantly die. This is not the being of Renaissance paintings. This is not the being that is a ball of light that floats out in space somewhere, or an old man with long gray hair. This is a being of infinite power and glory who is invisible, who says, do not make an image of me because anything you conceive of in your mind will fall infinitely short of who I really am. And then he says, because the soul that sins must die, and you have sinned, someone must The writer would say earlier in the book of Hebrews, they could never wash it away. But without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. These priests sacrificed upon the altar the blood of of the bull and the goat, and they took them outside the camp and burned them, and they took their blood into the holy place, the high priest, once a year, walking in and pouring it out upon the mercy seat and crying out, God, forgive me and my people of our sins. And it must be repeated year after year after year, a steadfast reminder that we are a sinful people and God is thrice holy and cannot even stand to look upon sin. So the bodies of the... Now he comes to apply it to Jesus. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Modern religion for quite some time has tried to shy away from this word. We would prefer to make Christianity less bloody. In fact, I've heard of hymnals that have had every reference to blood excised from the hymns. Because that just sounds so barbaric, so arcane. A modern person ought to be able to move past that. Surely God isn't that serious with sin that he demands a blood sacrifice. These are people who have never really come into contact with the Holy One of Israel. Who have never stood before His presence, shaking and trembling within themselves. Who have never, like the publican, walked into the temple and found the corner to fall upon his knees, refusing to even lift his eyes towards the heaven and beat upon his chest and cried out, Oh God, have mercy upon me, for I am a sinner. There have been times, late at night especially, when the house is quiet and the, 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 all the neighborhood is quiet and I come into the presence of the Most High God and I'm keenly aware of how unholy I am and my sins come flaring up before my eyes and my transgressions are present before me and I go, how can such a holy God stand to even look upon me? I wouldn't do it. I would cast me out. I would throw me into eternal damnation tonight. And the blood that he provides, he only demanded one human sacrifice and all, who freely gave himself up for us. Because blood, the blood of bulls and goats could never atone for our sins, because bulls and goats and lambs and other animals never sinned against God, 
never rebelled, never disobeyed his commands because they weren't created in his image and hadn't committed the ultimate treason, the highest form of insurrection ever. Because they could never atone, God provided a sacrifice, a second Adam that saves us. It's only the blood of Christ that cleanses us. It's only the blood of Christ that washes away that awful stain that will not come out. Do you recall from high school, perhaps, Macbeth, as the wife of Macbeth comes out and she's got, she sees her hands and she's washed them multiple times and still feels as if they cannot come clean? Curse, cursed hands. How can she make them clean? There's only one thing that can wash our filthy hands and make them clean, and that is the blood of Christ. It is this wonderful effect that that crimson river changes our souls into glistening white and removes every last stain. Spurgeon talked about this. He said, and bear with me, the quote's a little bit long. The death of Christ is the very core of Christianity. Leave out the cross and you have killed the religion of Jesus. Atonement by the blood of Jesus is not an arm of Christian truth. It is the heart of it. Even as the Lord said of the animal, the blood is its life. So it is true of the gospel. The sacrificial death of Jesus is the vital point of our profession. I know nothing of Christianity without the blood of Christ. No teaching is healthy which throws a cross into the background. The other day when I was inquiring about the welfare of a certain congregation, my informant told me that he had, that there had been few additions to the church, although the minister was a man of ability and industry. Furthermore, he let me see the reason for the failure, for he added, I have attended there for several years, and during all that time, I do not remember hearing a sermon about the sacrifice of Christ. The atonement is not denied, but it is left out. If this is so, what is to become of our churches? If the light of the atonement is put under a bushel, the darkness will be dense. In omitting the cross, you have cut the Achilles tendon of the church. It cannot move, nor even stand when this is gone. Holy work falls to the ground. It faints and dies when the blood of Jesus is taken away. The cross must be put into the forefront more than ever by the faithful because so many are unfaithful. Let us endeavor to make amends for the dishonor done to our divine master by those who deny or dishonor his vicarious sacrifice. Let us remain steadfast in this faith while others waver and preach Christ crucified if all others forbear. Grace, mercy, and peace be to all who exalt Christ crucified. The animals had to go outside the camp to be burned. Christ had to go outside the camp. The gate of the city of Jerusalem. Christ is of such infinite, his blood is infinitely powerful. And it cries out from the ground greater things than the blood of Abel. For it cries out for the forgiveness. Here's a part that always gets to me though. Because it's great to read about Christ's sacrifices in half. But then look at what we're called to do. Therefore let us go to him outside the camp. And bear the reproach he endured. 
First of all, to understand this in context, this is written to the Hebrew Christians. And so what he's calling them to do is not to return to the temple and the synagogue. But rather to bear the shame and reproach of Christ in a manful manner. We have to quit ourselves like men. We have to say, I believe, I trust in him. He's calling upon these Jewish Christians to say, I will go outside the camp with him because he is of greater value than anything inside the camp. The type, the shadow is done away. The cloud is pushed back because the substance, the reality has come. Have you ever wondered since the Old Testament is filled with such wonderful rituals and rites why Christianity has so few. We have two sacraments. We partake of the Lord's Supper so that we may recall His death and look forward to His coming again when, he shall, uh, when we shall feast with Him. And baptism is a symbol of His washing of us and cleansing us. But we have so few rites and rituals. Why? Because we have the substance here with us now. Jesus has come so we can cast off all those things. The Jewish Christians will be tempted to go back. And he tells them, don't. Go bear the reproach and shame of Christ. Go suffer with him. It's kind of a forlorn picture in my mind. Jesus Christ is leaving. He came unto his own, as John says, and his own did not receive him. He is leaving the holy city of David, his father. He is going out of Jerusalem. He is going up to the hill. He is going to the place where malefactors, where common criminals are executed. Along the way, he is bearing all kinds of shame and reproach. They are hurling insult and ridicule upon him. And they refuse to stop even at the moments of his most intense agony upon the cross. I was having a devotion with my children one night and I taught them innocent. I did some other things I can tell you about, but I didn't do that. I'm innocent. I'm going to insist upon my innocence. I remember being accused of talking in class one time in high school, and, and the teacher was going to give me a detention, and I'd never had a detention, and I know, I know. But, but, but I, I, I had never had a detention. This teacher was going to give me a detention, and I protested. I didn't do it. I didn't do it. And fortunately, one of the kids spoke up who was, who was talking and said, that's Bible Bill. He wasn't talking. <laughs> you can't give the Rev a detention, and they left me alone. But, but I remember feeling so incensed that I would be accused of something I didn't do. What was it like for Jesus? Every single thing he stood accused of was stuff we did, not him. He was completely innocent. He couldn't point and say, well, I didn't do this, but I did do this, because he didn't do any of it. To have only known the Father's love. To have only heard the skies part and that great voice from heaven cry out, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And now to cry out from a bitter agony that we will never fully understand, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
And he bore this shame. He handled the insult and the ridicule, the pain and the agony. He handled being despised of all people, rejected by heaven and earth. He handled this for No wonder why Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. How can we be ashamed of him who was not ashamed to bear our sins? How can we not rather own him? How can we not rather say, yes, I am a Christian. I am a follower of Jesus and I refuse to turn back. I heard a story by a martyr under the Roman Empire. Their torturers would try to extract information about their private meetings so they could find other Christians and try to exterminate them. Their goal being to wipe out the church once and for all. And so they tortured this poor man mercilessly. To each and every question, he would answer only, I am a Christian. What is your name? I am a Christian. Where do you live? I am a Christian. Where does your church meet? I am a Christian. Who are your friends and colleagues and associates? I am a Christian. In truth, he was answering their questions because his life was so completely consumed in Christ that he found all of his identity in this statement, I am a Christian. I'm sorry if Christ is going out there. I want to go with him. I want to follow in those bloody footsteps. And if they want to heap ridicule and scorn upon me, so be it. They did the same to my master. I should expect the same for the servant. If they do it for the teacher, the disciples should expect the same treatment. Let us go with him to bear the reproach he endured. Samuel Rutherford's great Scottish covenanter said, You will not get to steal quietly to heaven in Christ's company without a conflict and a cross. And John Bunyan in his great work, The Pilgrim's Progress, in which he tells of Christian, the pilgrim, leaving the city of destruction and traveling to the celestial city. A great theme throughout the book of Hebrews are, as it declares that we are exiles and strangers in this world. If you will go with, when he was speaking, when Christian was speaking to Mr. Byans, Mr. Byans had said that he was all for following Christ when there was fair weather and when he could walk with him in silver slippers, and enjoy him during his times of applause. The which I perceive is against your opinion. You must also own religion in his rags as well as when in his silver slippers, and stand by him too when bound in irons as well as when he And then we come to the last verse. For here we have no lasting city, I have all these little distractions that keep me deeply mired within this world. And not that those things are wrong. That's what God expects of us. But all of these things can turn my focus. And when the city is faring well, I'm happy and comfortable. And when Augustine faced a similar crisis during the early part of the 5th century with the invasion of the barbarians, the collapse of the Roman Empire seemed inevitable. Many of the Romans were blaming the Christians for the fall. They said it was the Christians' fault because they had turned their hearts to the one true God away from the plethora of gods that the Romans used to worship. 
Had they stuck with those old and ancient deities, they might. Augustine wrote his, one of his great works, The City of God, to try to recall people to the idea that we are living, that Rome is only a temporary place. You'd be hard-pressed to find a patriot more so than me. I like the U.S. I love the U.S. I love our Constitution. I love the stories of our founding fathers. I love the stories of heroic deeds and of, the, of trying to create a free nation upon the earth. But the U.S. is not that city. And if the U.S. collapses, we still have a city that is yet to come. In Hebrews chapter 11, when speaking of Abraham, the writer says that, that he endured as seeing him who is invisible. For he looked for a city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Think about that for a moment. And this blows the dispensational stuff out of the water, forgive me. But Abraham wasn't going to the promised land so that he could inherit the promised land alone. Like everything else, that was only a type, a foreshadowing of what was to come. Abraham realized as he traveled through the promised land that he was just a stranger, dwelling in tents, no permanent dwelling with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. And the writer would later say, for all those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. And truly, if they'd been mindful of that country from which they came out, they might have had an opportunity to have returned. But now they desire a better country. That is a heavenly country. Wherefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. For he, we are pilgrims and aliens. We are strangers. We don't belong to this present life. We are passing through because there is a city yet to come. Jerusalem itself was only a type and a shadow of the new Jerusalem that John sees coming out of heaven as a bride adorned for her husband. The end of all things could be at hand. And if not, it will be at hand one day. And we must prepare ourselves for the arrival of that heavenly city when heaven comes down to earth. We must look steadfastly beyond this present world and beyond all of the things that attract and allure us and instead realize that it is better to suffer for a time being with Christ so that we may one day share in his glory. For Paul said, I reckon that the, pre that the present sufferings are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. There is a city yet to come. C.S. Lewis wrote this. I thought, found it interesting. The Christian says creatures are not born with de desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there is such a thing as water. He has one for, human, for, for grown men, which I will exclude because of mixed company, but you can figure it out. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. 
If that is so, I must take care on the one hand never to despise or to be unthankful for these earthly blessings. And on the other, never to mistake them for the something else of which they are only a kind of copy or echo or mirage. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find till after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of life to press on to that country and to help others to do the same. What is that country like? We aren't given a lot of the details. But we are given enough to make us hunger and pant and long after it. I close with this. In Revelation chapter 21, John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. May God hasten the day when we get to walk into that city.